0: Matthew 6, verse 16, Jesus instructs, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. Your Father who sees in secret Will reward you. This is the word of God. You know, every religion in the world fasts, it's a staple. Every religion in the world has some form of fasting, uh, not just in it tangentially, but often central to it. Even like the American agnostic religion. Americans, uh, agnostic Americans love fasting. I can prove it to you. Check out the New York Times bestseller list. Half of the books will be murder mysteries, and half of the books will be diet or fasting books. And really, there's no difference between the two. (laughs) Basically, the heart of dieting is depriving yourself of food, and that is the essence of fasting. Americans fast not to grow closer to the Lord, but Americans fast because we want to look good and go fast. You know, that's why Americans fast. We have this, especially agnostic Americans, people who are irreligious feel out of control about the world, but they feel like they can control their own bodies. It's the one thing in the world they're confident of their ability to manipulate, and so they're drawn towards that kind of self-asceticism. I once did a fast uh, that, well, a diet that involved eating whatever you wanted as long as it was grapefruit or bacon. <laughs> it was an incredibly effective diet, if the goal was to eat grapefruit and bacon, which was my goal, and so it worked out quite nicely. It's not just agnostic Americans that like to fast, but religious Americans like to fast in in Islam. You know, there's the five pillars of Islam. One of them is the fasting of Ramadan. And, you know, Ramadan is basically a daily fast. You uh, wake up in the morning, you go to morning prayer, you go back to sleep after that, then you wake up again and do your day Uh, Your day ends with the call to evening prayer, where you have like a cracker or a biscuit or something, and an evening prayer, and then at the evening is a full, you know, feast with extended family, and it's a very uh, jubilant and jovial attitude, and then you go to sleep and it starts all over the next day. So it is really, it's literally famine to feast to famine to feast, times 30, 30 days of that, where you uh, fast all day long and then feast at the evening. It's central to what it means to be a Muslim. Catholicism has its own forms of fasting. There's the 40 days of fast that leads up to um, the, ho- the Holy Week, the Lenten fast, where you don't eat meat. You know, in church history, it was often you don't eat meat through those 40 days. You might be interested to know where that concept of Lent comes from. You know, in the early church, uh, baptism was practiced on Easter. It was the day of the year where most churches baptized believers. And so the believers would fast from foods during the day for the 40 days leading up to baptism and then they would be baptized. But as the church in the, you know, the fourth and fifth centuries left believers' baptism and begin to embrace infant baptism, the Lenten fast was no longer for baptismal preparation, but became just something for every believer to prepare themselves to celebrate Holy Week. So it was the 40 days before, you know, the Monday before, before Easter. And the Catholics taught that you're supposed to fast during that time to prepare yourself to celebrate Holy Week. Also in Catholicism, there's the every day or every week fast on Friday where you deprive yourself of meat on on Fridays. And that's meat that lives on the the grounds, not in the ocean or in water. You can eat fish on Fridays, hence McDonald's fillet of fish kind of thing, uh, targeting the, the Catholic world who would deprive themselves of meat on Fridays. In the 1900s, those two fasts kind of merged, and a lot of Catholic countries in the world let people go back to eating meat on Fridays if they gave up meat for Lent or then it became gave up meat for every Friday of Lent and it is a complicated system where the two merged together that is really central in Catholicism for until the nineteen sixties it was a mortal sin to break those fasts. It's so central to what that means. Judaism in Jesus's lifetime had three pillars and of course Muslims came and took those three and expanded them. But the three pillars in Judaism during Jesus's lifetime was alms giving public prayers, and fasting. That's not something that every Jew practiced, but it was something the religious Jews practiced. They would devote themselves to those kind of things, and they would usually happen on Mondays and Thursdays. Mondays were the day of fasting, Thursdays were the day of fasting. That was in Judaism, commemorating the idea that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and received the law in two trips, one on Monday, one on Thursday. So the Jews, the religious Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, a skeptical person would note that in Jerusalem, Mondays and Thursdays were the market days. That was the day where everybody was out in the street and it was very uh, vibrant days, Mondays and Thursdays were. And so if you were to fast to be seen by others, that would be a very good day to choose your fast. That's what a skeptical person would notice. I'm not asking you to notice that. Uh, but it is, um, it is hovering in the background. So when Jesus is talking about the fast of the Jews, he's talking about this fast that they would do on Monday and Thursdays. Depriving themselves of food basically during the day. But skipping lunch is what that was. And then, you know, when you think of it in terms of skipping lunch, you notice that they were looking gloomy and covering their face with ashes and everything. I feel that way sometimes after skipping lunch. (laughs) It was a very, in a sense, over-the-top approach to it. Well, Jesus intersects with these teachings. You know, in those three pillars of Judaism, in Matthew 6, Jesus corrects all of them. Have you noticed? He goes after how they gave publicly with the trumpets and everything. He says, don't give like that. Give in secret. He goes after how they prayed publicly and says, don't pray like that. Pray in secret. And then he went after how they fasted. He talked about that before the Sermon on the Mount, and now he's circling back to it again after the the Lord's Prayer. He tells them, once he finished teaching them how to pray in verse 13, he then talks about the importance of forgiving in verse 14 and 15, he circles back to fasting and gives his instruction. Now you want to observe in this that as he corrects their approach to fasting, he doesn't obliterate their fasting. He doesn't say don't fast like they do or don't fast at all. He corrects it. He gives them a course correction. I want to look at that course correction this morning. I'm going to give you an outline. uh, An outline of four reasons that believers fast. And I want to kind of start at this ground level. Kind of why fasting is in the Bible. What fasting is designed to do in the Bible. Because fasting ironically, for American Christians, is somewhat sparse. I mentioned earlier how ubiquitous fasting is in our American culture, but the exception to that appears to be the evangelical world. A lot of American Christians are very uh, resistant or, or loathe to this concept of fasting. And that's because I think when I mean, you look through the last 20 or 30 years of church history, so many churches have been built up around this idea of felt needs, of designing a church to meet people's needs, And you recognize that if you build a church to meet people's needs, fasting is not a person's need. Fasting is against your need. Your body wants food. You feel like you need food. Fasting is depriving yourself of that. So if you start structuring a church around appealing to people's needs, fasting is not going to make the list. It's pretty contrary to that approach to Christianity. Nevertheless, fasting is described in the Bible repeatedly. There's probably at least 30 different descriptions of fasting in the Bible, and I want to kind of corral those and put them under four headings this morning. First, people in the Bible fast because of despair. This is far and away the most common form of fasting in the Bible despair, sorrow. People fast when they are overcome with sorrow, grief, or despair. I mean, often at their own sin, when Jonah went to Nineveh, he he preached the good news to them. And by the good news, I mean he told them, in 40 days, you're all going to (laughs) die. And they heard that message, and they were convicted, and they responded by fasting. They weren't fasting to win God's approval. They were fasting because they were so broken by the awareness of their own sin. They were so broken and grieved by their sin, they didn't want food because of how aware they were of their sinfulness, so they fasted. Sometimes this was done for a public show of despair. Like David, when Abner died, 2 Samuel 3, Abner died, and I won't bore you with all the political details of Abner's death, but it was a big political news item. Uh, It was very important for David to message to the Israelites that he did not approve of Abner's killing. He did not approve how Abner was really murdered. He wanted everybody to know he was innocent in this. He didn't break his deal. And so he proclaimed that he would fast until the sun went down that day. It's 2 Samuel 3, verse 35. David says, may the Lord kill me if I so much as taste food until the sun sets. This was a way of David demonstrating to the Israelites he was in despair over his friend Abner's death. It's a message to people that he was grieving. He said, I won't eat for the rest of the day. That is fasting. It's not the most well-known of David's fasts, of course. The most well-known one is probably when his son died. Do you remember? He had an affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba had a child and the Lord afflicted that child and David prayed and fasted for a week for that child to live. In fact, 2 Samuel 12 records the scene after Nathan left, the text says, God afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. It was Yahweh that afflicted the child. The child became sick and David sought Yahweh on behalf of the child and David fasted and laid on the ground all night long. This wasn't a day fast. The text makes it clear that this lasted all through the nights. David just laid on the ground. He describes this fast in Psalm 35, verse 13. He says he put on sackcloth and he laid on his face and he prayed during that time. When you read the text carefully, it's just a gut punch. It says David sought the Lord on behalf of his baby. This baby's too little to seek the Lord. His baby doesn't know what prayer is. His baby doesn't know how to seek Yahweh's favor. And so David, and it's David's own sin that is responsible for this. So David is seeking the Lord on behalf of the child. He's trying to be an intermediary here, an intercessor. And he doesn't, doesn't eat during that time. This is not, I think you missed the point of this if you think that David is fasting to try to win over the Lord's favor here. No, David is fasting because he doesn't want food He's so struck with grief over what's happening to his baby. He doesn't want to eat anything. Food would be terrible to him. This is the, you know, the person who's praying at the bedside of their child in the hospital, and you come up to them and they're like, oh, you should go eat something. And like, I don't want to eat anything. I don't feel like food. I want to be here with my child. That's this scenario. And it lasts like that all week long. And at the end of the week, you remember the child died. David gets up and showers and eats and worships the Lord, and it was mystifying to his servants. If you remember, his servants were like, this doesn't make any sense. When the child was alive, you were praying and fasting, and now he's dead, you're worshiping? Shouldn't that be switched or something? David says, you know what? We're going to meet each other in heaven again. Let's get on with it. That's probably the most well-known example of David's fasting, driven by despair. And this is a pattern that is all over the Bible. It's not just those. When the Israelites slaughtered a whole tribe, remember they wiped out the Benjamites in Judges 20, they responded by fasting. It was like they accidentally killed all the Benjamites, if you remember, like, whoa, we didn't mean to get all of them. And they responded by weeping and fasting. There's so many other examples that time would get away from us from. But that's probably the most common example of fasting in the Bible, is with someone is gripped, gripped by despair and grief, and they respond with fasting. Second example, danger, danger. And you could, you know, if you made your own list, you might choose different categories or combine some of these categories or add to these categories, but this is my list, so I get to choose them. Danger, people in the Old Testament, often when they found themselves in immediate danger, responded with fasting. 2 Chronicles 20, for example. Judah, the nation of Judah, was surrounded by their enemies. I don't know if they were really surrounded or if it was just rumors that got to them, but the, the king heard, King Jehoshaphat heard that the enemies were around them, and he declared a day of fasting to seek Yahweh's protection. He told everybody in Judah, don't eat today to seek the Lord's favor to, to, so God will protect us. This is in Esther chapter 4 when Mordecai tells Esther she's got to go to the king and ask for help. And Esther says, I can't go to the king. If you go to the king without being invited, the king kills you is what happens. And Mordecai says, you're going to die anyway. If you don't get strong and courageous and go to the king, the Lord will rise, deliverance up from some other place, but you will die, Esther. Don't be confused about that. And so Esther says, all right, I'll go to the king. But I'm not going to the king until you get all the Jews in the city. Remember, the king had ordered all the Jews to be killed. You get all the Jews in the city together, and they all fast on that day. I want them fa- when I go to the king, I want them fasting with me. This is a way to message to the Jews that they are in serious danger and Esther's doing all that she can. This is a corporate identity here. They're gonna fast with her as she goes. Ironically, she designs the the feast, remember? She designs a feast to lure the king in while all the Jews are fasting for her feast to be successful. And Esther was not having them fast, by the way, to get her way in this. She was not trying to change the will of the Lord because after she said have them all fast, she said, then I'll go to the king, and remember her words, if I perish, I perish. She wasn't fasting to manipulate the Lord's will. She was fasting because she had surrendered to the Lord's will. Whatever you're going to do, do, Daniel does the same thing. You know, it's in Daniel's fast where he sees his people in danger, and he fasts. And, but remember, they, they tell the king, "His Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell the king, listen, if we die, we die. We'll only die. It's the worst that can happen. People responded to danger with those kind of fastings. Ezra, another example that comes to mind. Ezra had asked the king if he could bring gold and silver back from the capital to rebuild the temple. Do you remember this? And the king says, yeah, do you need an escort? And Ezra says, we don't need an escort because Yahweh in heaven, he's watching over us. And we have the Lord's favor. And this is the Lord's will. And it's his plan. So we're going to be fine. And then Ezra's messengers come back to him and say, hey, there's armies lining the road waiting to ambush you and steal your gold and silver. This is in Ezra 8. He's in a bit of a pickle now, right? He, what is he going to do? Go back to the king and say, on second thought, we'll take that escort. <laughs> no. So he fasts and asks the others around him to fast. And the end of the fast is when he comes up with the idea we'll give all the money to the priest, and the priest can take it. Maybe they'll be able to slip through, and the Lord honors that, and they're successful. Here's an interesting example from our own nation's history. Well, from England's history, 1756, King George II was king of England, and, and that's not the King George of the American Revolution, that's bef- before, before this, King George II, who was not liked by Christians. King George II was uh, having an affair, and he was parading his mistress around as if she was queen, he had children, his children were being raised Roman Catholic, there was the fear that when he died, the, the country would turn back to Catholicism. There was persecution of believers. Christians were not having a good time in in England. So many of them were fleeing. They fled to the uh, mainland Europe, to the Netherlands. Many of them fled to the U.S., if you recall, in that time period. I imagine how bad it would be for them to say, you know what? We're going to go on an ocean voyage and have our luck with the Indians. We're getting out of here. That's what was happening in 1756. And the French saw all the discord in England, and that England was on the border of its own civil war. And so the French thought they would invade. They gathered their armies together and they were gonna cross the English Channel and invade England. And King George heard about it and he declared a fast and appealed to the Christians to fast. John Wesley describes this in his journal about how outrageous it was, like how just shocked the Christians were. This is the guy that had been persecuting Christians yesterday and today calls them up and says, by the way, I really need God's help. Would you fast for a country? Imagine being the pastor that gets that phone call. And John Wesley said the, the church agreed, and all the churches in England fasted for a day for England's deliverance. You know how it turned out? You speak English and not French. That's how it turned out. <laughs> Danger. Thirdly, people fast for direction. This is the most common New Testament example of fasting. The others are mostly, as you can see from the examples, Old Testament. But in the New Testament, people often fast for direction because they don't know what God's will is for the next step of their life. You see this at the church in Antioch in Acts 13. They're trying to choose missionaries to go reach the Gentiles. They don't know who to choose. And so the leadership of the church fasts and prays And then at the end of that prayer and fast is when they choose Paul and Barnabas and send them off to the Gentiles. Notice, they were not fasting in order to make Paul a missionary. It's not like they said, we want to make Paul a missionary, so we're going to fast to make that happen. No, they were fasting because they didn't know what to do. So it wasn't trying to change God's will. It was trying to seek God's will. That's a very big difference. Fasting is generally designed under this heading here, to seek God's will, not to change it, not to get it. The church in Antioch does that again in Acts chapter 14, if you recall. Acts chapter 14, they were looking to appoint elders, and so they fasted again, and then appointed elders, which is a kind of a little warning for churches. Like, it's a big deal to appoint elders. The early church prayed and fasted over the decision. And again, when you're reading this, it's not like we're going to appoint elders, so we're going to declare a fast. No, it was their deliberating. The, The leadership of the church is sitting there praying and seeking God's will. And what happens? They get hungry. Are they going to stop and break and circle back tomorrow? And they say, no, we're going to push through this. We're going to keep praying until we're all unified in this. In this sense, prayer and fasting was a way to have to seek the Lord's direction. It says the Lord revealed to them to make Paul and Barnabas Missionaries. I don't think that meant an audible voice that the Lord spoke into the room, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, I think it more likely it's the leadership of the church that doesn't have unity in this, and so they're praying and they're not breaking. They're not gonna separate and go their own ways and circle back again tomorrow. No, they're gonna stay in the room and lock the door until they're all in agreement. I can't help but wonder how much more efficient elders' meetings would be like that if we kept that rule here. Nobody can leave. Nobody can eat until we're all in agreement. (laughs) Like, I defer, I defer. (laughs) That's the pattern, though, in the early church. They fasted to find direction, what the Lord wanted them to do. What the Lord wanted them to do. Again, a caution. This kind of fasting is like the Sermon on the Mount prayer. You're saying, God, I want your will to be done not mine. Think of how often every four years or so it seems people say we should declare a day of fasting so that so-and-so gets elected president. The name may change every few years, but it's the idea. Let's declare a day of fasting so this person wins the presidency or this person wins the governorship or this person wins this or that. That's different than the New Testament model of fasting. It wasn't fasting to get this result. It was fasting because we don't know what to do. It was a submission to God's will, a submission, a way of saying, God, your will be done, not mine. In Hinduism, there's this practice of, it's called the practice of Manau, which is a way that creditors can collect money. It's somewhat common in India, I read, where somebody is owed somebody money. The person who's owed the money can shame the person who's you know, in debt to get them to pay. You'd stand outside their house and you wouldn't eat, and you wouldn't drink, and you wouldn't change your clothes, and you just stand there looking forlorn, eventually the neighbors are going to ask, why are you pacing back in front of that person's driveway? He say, because they owe me $100 is why. And the idea is that the more forlorn you look, the more shame is heaped on the person who owes you the money. Eventually they'll pay just to get you to stop shaming them. That, I think, is behind Gandhi's approach to fasting, which, you know, became political fasting, which is still common all over the world today, of you fast to bring shame on your government to get them to change their way. That is not Christian fasting. Christians, I think, sometimes let that sink into their mind where they think, I'll fast and that will show God how important this is to me or how hard this is for me. It's almost like the shaming element that God will take shame in how low I am and give me my prayer request. That is not Christian fasting. Christian fasting is about seeking the Lord's direction. Not shaming him, but seeking him. Finally, the fourth category is discipline. And this is the most abstract of the four categories. I'll grant you that. This is the most abstract. But I think it is also seen in the New Testament with uh, Jesus refraining from food before he receives, um, before he goes and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Or Moses fasting for 40 days before he receives the law. Paul and Uh, It tells the Corinthians that there's so many times he went without food as he was uh, studying the word of God. This is the kind of discipline that comes into your life where you are rejecting food or ignoring your desire for food for the sake of studying the word and for the sake of um, demonstrating that you desire God more than food. To understand this one, you kind of have to step back a second and ask, again, what is fasting? And fasting is saying no to food. For a period of time, as you seek the Lord, food drives people. And you set that drive aside to seek the Lord. You almost have to ask an even bigger question, like, what is food? You know, God made food for you to eat to sustain your life. God didn't need to make you in such a way that you needed food. That was a choice God made. Angels don't need food. He could have made you like Angels. Plants don't need food, they just you know, take in the air. God could have made you like that, where you just take in the air around you for your sustenance. But God made you so that you eat. This is a, a regular declaration that you are a dependent creature, You're dependent on the earth God made, the rain God gives, the animals and the food God gives you to be made and prepared for you to consume, for you to maintain your life. God made the world that way to make you realize how dependent you are. And then on top of that, he made food good, which he also didn't need to do. He could have made you absorb air, but no, he let you eat. And he could have made you, he could have made the world where you just eat dirt. That's all you have to do is go eat dirt to live. That would be so lame, wouldn't it? Have you tasted dirt? But no, God made a world with so much different food and an infinite number of foods and green chili and 10,000 other things. There's so many infinite foods in the world and they all taste good. All the food tastes good except for mayonnaise. That tastes very bad. But all the other food tastes so good and you can mix it and match it in different ways and God made the world for you to enjoy it. That's so kind of him. And you need it. And so every time you eat, you're remembering that you're dependent on him. How important food is and how kind he is that he gives it to you. But you're also supposed to remember that man does not live on food alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so there are times where you say no to food because you prioritize the word of God. Let me give you just a couple basic examples of this. It's in the morning, you're reading the Bible, you're praying, maybe 30 minutes in the Bible, 15, 20 minutes praying, and then you get hungry. So at this point, what do you do? Do you close the Bible and stop praying and go eat? Well, yes, probably. That's probably what you do most days of your life. But if that is what you do every time, then you are limiting your spiritual growth by putting a cap on your Bible reading and your prayer based upon your body, what your body wants. So you're constantly demonstrating that food has priority to you over the word of God because you will stop reading and stop praying in order to go eat. But imagine if occasionally you said, you know what, I'm actually not gonna eat now feel the grumble in my tummy, but I'm not going to eat. I'm going to keep reading and keep praying because I'm learning something new or I'm seeking the Lord about this one certain thing and I will not be interrupted by food. And I'm not even saying this has to be an intentional design by you where you start off like, today I'm not going to go eat. I'm going to keep reading, keep praying, and push through. No, I'm, I'm saying that as you grow in the faith, that might just happen more naturally to you. That you're reading the Bible and you're praying and you're seeking the Lord and you just go through mealtime. Or imagine a different scenario. You didn't have time to read the word in the morning. You didn't have a devotional time. You didn't pray. You go off to work. Everything's busy at work, and you have important things in the afternoon that day at work. You would like to pray about them. You'd like to seek the Lord about those things, but you don't have time. But you do have a lunch break. You have an hour right in the middle of the day. So now you have the choice. Are you going to take that lunch break and go out with friends and go eat or go down to the cafeteria and eat? Or are you going to say, actually, no, today I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay in my office and I'm going to read the word and I'm going to pray to prepare myself for this afternoon. That's just the choice you make right there. I'd rather seek the Lord's favor right now. I'm going to prioritize that over going to eat. That's not something you do every day. But I think it is a tool you should have in the tool bag, so to speak. And if you don't have that tool, then every time... Your spiritual life is maxed out by the limitations of your tummy. You have to remind yourself that, listen, your body works for you. You don't work for your body. This is the basic principle about Christian living. Your body is your employee. You are the boss of your body. Don't let your employee boss you around. Your body says, ooh, I'm hungry, feed me. You can say, no, body, be quiet. I'll tell you when you eat. You get in line back there. Now, if you understand that, you will have self-control in all kinds of spiritual areas. If you fail to understand that, you'll give in to gluttony, you'll give in to laziness, you'll give in to lust. You're like, ooh, I want the pillow, pillow calls. Nobody, you're gonna keep working until it's clock-out time. Lust, you give into lust because your body wants something. Nobody, get in line. Fasting helps you cultivate that discipline. Now listen, non-Christians can cultivate that discipline. Non-Christians can do intermittent fasting because they're prioritizing the look of their body and whatever over their food. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you prioritizing the Lord over your food. That's why fasting is an important tool. John Piper has a a great book called Hunger for God. I stole the title for the book for the title of the sermon today. Maybe some of you noticed. There's a great line in there that says... He realized that for him and for many people in his church, the greatest danger to their spirituality was not pornography or not adultery, or not cheating on their taxes, like not the, the big sins that you think, oh, people might be tempted to do this. He said, no, the biggest danger for most of the people I know is not that. More dangerous to them is not that spiritual poison, but Pop-Tarts. Apple pie, that's the bigger danger to their spirituality because whenever they're reading the Bible, they see something that is good or food and they like stop the Bible reading and stop praying to go eat. That is more dangerous to them than those other. because those other sins aren't necessarily tempting to many of those people. But they just max out their spiritual life because of their tummies. Fasting is important because it teaches you That food is good, but God is better. It keeps you from falling in love with the messenger, or with the message, the food, and provokes you to fall in love with the messenger, the Lord who gives you the food by recognizing that he is more important. Now, in all of these descriptions on the screen, all four of them, I hope you see that all four of them are connected to prayer. And so let's jump back into our text. I told you that was a long introduction. Now we're to the text. When you fast, verse 16, do not, notice this says when, not if, but when. There's almost a presumption. It's not a command, but it's almost a presumption. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. That word disfigure there, it's the, uh, the word for erase or eradicate. They're putting so much ash on their face that they almost can't be recognized. I say almost because it's important to them that they be recognized, but almost. You look at that person and go, "I'll oh, do a double take with all the ash on them. They're totally disfigured. Again, we're talking about people that skipped lunch here, but they're totally disfigured. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They want to be recognized by those, as those who fast. Well, they got it. When you fast, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face. That way you're not being a hypocrite. Anoint your, you're fasting and you feel weak. And Jesus says, you know, throw some water in your face. Shave. Put on makeup. That's two different categories of people. The shaving and putting on makeup. Two different categories of people there. (laughs) Dress yourself and look appropriate. Don't draw attention to the fact that you're, oh, I'm fasting. I couldn't possibly, I'm fasting. No, clean yourself up. Because you're doing it for the Lord, not for the people. This gets to the heart of what fasting is. Remember, your fasting is you're so driven by desire to experience the Lord through His Word and through praying. You're not doing that if you're doing it in front of other people. Just like basically, and so Jesus says, "Clean yourself up. You do not want your fasting to be seen by others." But by your father's in secret. This is how he told him to pray earlier in Matthew 5. When you pray, go into your room and close the door so people can't see you. I mean, who are you fasting to? Who are you praying to? Your father sees in secret. He knows what's going on in your heart. Let me give you three little observations from this in closing. I'm sneaking a second sermon in right here. The extra free sermon. First, fasting is always linked to prayer. I said there's 30 plus passages about fasting in the Bible. In every one of them, fasting is connected to prayer. Fasting is never a means or an end in and of itself. It's not what you're going for. You're not working towards fasting. Fasting is the means to help your prayer. Fasting is the mechanism by which you spend for a long time in prayer and in the word of God. It's not the goal in and of itself. You're burdened with the need. You seek the face of the Lord. Sometimes the burden is so much that you don't even want to eat because you're seeking the Lord's face. It's about the prayer, not the fasting. Secondly, fasting is driven then by prayer, not by your schedule. Because remember what I'm telling you the fasting is I'm telling you that most often, Fasting is just, it's natural. It's not something you're like, oh, I'm going to fast here. No, it's, it's natural. You're like so overwhelmed by grief that you don't want to eat. Or you're so consumed by your time in the Word or by your prayer that you don't want to eat. It doesn't cross your mind. So you realize, oh, I guess, I guess we're fasting today. Because that is driven by prayer, not by your schedule. When you have that attitude towards fasting, do you understand how weird it would be to say, I'm going to do that on Mondays and Thursdays? Or how weird it's gonna be to say, I'm gonna do that for these 40 days. Or I'm going to do that on every Friday. Or I'm gonna do that for these 30 days over here. That's not this, that's not what I'm describing. I'm not describing a calendar-driven fasting. I'm describing an urgency where there's a prayer request or a spiritual need in your life that that's driving you, rather than what day of the week it is. This is why, by the way, that Protestant churches or evangelical churches don't practice Lent, because we're not driven by that kind of that's not the calendar's not formulating our, our fasting here. We celebrate Easter. We celebrate commemorate Good Friday. but we don't fast for a month leading up to it, because fasting for us is driven by the desire to know the Lord. Now listen, I know that there's cultural differences, like I mentioned, Eastern Europeans or or Europeans in general, believers fast way more than American believers, Asian believers, especially Korean believers, fasting is a critical part of their evangelical culture. And my caution for all believers, regardless of what culture they're from, is to make sure that fasting is driven by a sense of urgency for the Lord rather than by a schedule. And then thirdly, Fasting is a Christian model, not a Christian mandate. And this is the part where you just have to be a little discerning here with your categories. If you're, being, if you're taking all that the New Testament says about fasting, well, all the Bible says about fasting, really, there's a couple conclusions you're going to have to reach. First of all, the Bible does not command command fasting. You're never commanded to fast. There's no New Testament commands that tells Christians you must fast. They're, it's just not there. Even in the Old Testament, there's only one fast commanded in the Old Testament, and that was the day before the Day of Atonement, because they're grieving over their sin. There's no command to fast. At the same time, fasting was so common in Judaism that you would expect Jesus to say, don't fast if he wanted his believers not to fast. Instead, he says, when you fast. So again, he doesn't command it. And he doesn't say don't do it, but he doesn't say do it. So that leaves you, you have to have nuance here. And I know there are some believers that say, no, you need to say fasting is commanded. And there's other believers that say, no, you need to say Christians shouldn't fast because Jesus already came. Neither of those two are what I'm seeing here. What I'm seeing here is a pattern of fasting that is often naturally driven by your time in the word of God that's not mandated. And so I want to give you a couple verses to help form your mind on this. Flip over with me to Colossians 2. We've got a few minutes still. Flip over to Colossians 2. This is very clear New Testament teaching list. We'll go to a few verses here. Colossians 2 verse 16. Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Don't allow yourself to be judged as less spiritual because you don't fast, or regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. They're shadows; those things aren't there? There are. They're just shadows. The substance is Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. There's a connection here, Paul's noticing, between those that say that you must fast and those that have these prolonged visions about angels and demons and spiritual warfare and all that. And I'm not really sure what that connection is, but I have noticed that connection. I'm sure many of you have too. Generally, the kind of people that say, no, fasting is a mandatory part of the Christian life, are often in the same category of people that have these visions about demons and angels and spiritual warfare and all that. You think, what's the connection between those two? Well, Paul connects them. I think the connection is people that aren't just satisfied with the normal Christian life, of the normal means of grace. They want something more than the normal preaching and normal praying and normal singing. want something more than normal Bible reading to inject their spiritual life. Well, Paul says, don't fall into that. Don't get disqualified over that kind of stuff. It's asceticism, and it's practically worshiping the angels, he says. If you died with Christ, verse 20 says, don't give in to these kind of regulations. Verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Those things all perish when you use them, he says in verse 22. They have an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion, he calls it, and severity of the body. There are no value to shape the flesh, or to, to, uh, to stop the flesh. People say, oh, you're not spiritual if you eat on these days. You're not spiritual if you eat this food. You're not spiritual if you drink that drink. Paul says, listen, you want to eat the food, eat it. You want to drink the drink, drink it. You're not more or less spiritual in either category. Stop it. Hold on to Christ, not food and drink. Some people say, oh, it's why for you not to eat that food or drink that drink? Paul says that has no value in stopping the flesh, no value at all. He sums that up. You don't need to flip there, but he sums that up. He summarizes all of Colossians 2 in one sentence in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. Food will not commend you to God, period. Short. Food does not make you better or worse. You're no worse off if you eat. You're no better off if you don't eat. It doesn't matter. Flip over to First Timothy 4. Write a few books. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. First Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage, and they require abstinence from food. So notice that he's wrapping all this together. There are people that will go on and on about spiritual visions and demonic activity. Also, he says, they'll forbid marriage. There'll be whole religious teachers that go up and say, if you want to be godly, don't get married. And they'll also say, if you want to be godly, don't eat on certain days. He says, that's false teaching. Don't fall for it, he says. Because everything, verse 4, everything is created by God, is good, and nothing should be rejected if it's received with things. So They've are talking about food and marriage. God made marriage good, and he made food good, so be thankful for it. I've said this before. I will say it again. Food tastes so much better when you're thankful for it. Amen? And you've seen this if you've got little kids. They don't like the food before they even tasted it. They're not thankful for it, and it's not going to taste good. When they are thankful for it, it tastes so much better, and the table is happier. The same is true with Marriage. So much marriage counseling could be distilled to that basic point. Be thankful for your spouse and your life will be happier. You might say, oh, but my, you don't know, my spouse is a slacker loser villain. Yeah, okay, but he's your slacker loser villain, okay? (laughs) So be thankful to the Lord for him or her. You'll just enjoy marriage better. You'll enjoy life more. And that's Paul's point here. You should be thankful for food. Be thankful for marriage. The fasting is not going to make you more spiritual or less spiritual. But as you grow in spirituality, you're going to be driven into times of fasting, most likely. But not everybody gets this memo. So flip over to Matthew 9 and we'll end here. We'll end in Matthew 9. Not everybody gets the memo where Jesus teaches about fasting. The disciples of John the Baptist came to him, Matthew 9, verse 14, and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? So this is the, the Monday, Thursday fast. The disciples of John the Baptist say, John makes us fast. How come you guys don't fast? This question is probably happening on a Monday or Thursday, would be my guess. <laughs> Remember, they're all inside Matthew's house having a feast, and John the Baptist disciples are like, what in the world? Jesus' answer is incredible. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? What? When the groom is at your table, be happy, Jesus says. Notice in this statement, well, first of all, take an American wedding. If you're going to a wedding, you're celebrating the wedding. Don't play the game where you're like, I'm going to go to the wedding, but I won't eat the cake. And that way they'll know I don't approve. (laughs) If you go to the wedding, you're going there because you're happy and you're celebrating. And you're sitting at the table, and you know, in the American weddings, the bride and groom are, go around the room together, right? They go table to table at the wedding and say hi to everybody. You know, even if at the point they get to your table, you're bored out of your mind and your food is cold, you need to be happy when they're at your table. They come by your table, and just like, oh, I'm so happy for you. You're not supposed to say, this chicken's kind of, you know, rubbery. <laughs> <laughs> it's their wedding. Jesus says, this is why my disciples don't fast, because I'm here. Jesus is elevating himself to the position of the bridegroom. He says, I'm the groom of the church. I'm the Lord of the church, Jesus says. And when I'm here, my people aren't fasting. There's national danger, but Jesus is here. What's more important? You're despairing, and Jesus is here. Where are you going to go? You're driven in the word of God, but Jesus is here. What are you going to tell Jesus? Jesus, hold on, please. I'm reading the Bible. I'll get back to you in a second. I got a really, I got a cross reference. I got to chase down. Hold on, please, Jesus. Oh, no, Jesus is here, and Jesus says, "But the bridegroom's going to go away soon, and then my people will fast." Even again, the way he says it, he's not a command. It's a pattern. And saying it that way, Jesus drives home the point: the most basic element of our deliverance is past tense. Jesus already came, and we cast our eyes to the future for His return. God, we're grateful that you um, hear our prayers. We have a hunger for you. We want to see you and know you more in our life. That's what drives us more than anything else, Lord, the desire to be close to you. Help us grow in our love for you. Help us experience you more. This is what we desire more than food, is to know you, our Lord and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. For more information on our church or our current service times, go to ibc.church. For more information about the Master Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been a blessing to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel with boldness.